There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Saying, who shall I send? Who shall I send? Go for us. Go for us. Thank you. It's like a virus. I'm going to tell you a story of the greatest man that ever lived. At least that was one guy's opinion. And when I tell you the individual who said that, it might carry some extra weight. He was a prophet, but he was more than that. He was the prophet that all the other prophets were looking forward to. He was the voice of the voiceless, as Rage Against the Machine says. He left emotional scars on many of those that heard his powerful voice. He was a holy, wild man that shook the status quo to its core. He acted totally free of any and all authoritarian pressures of the time to conform which makes him a problem. He was an absolute nightmare to the culture of the time, the politics, religious pomp and circumstance. He was a wrecking ball of perfected, holy defiance. He was most famous for his bizarre attire, camel hair, and his diet, but that's the least of this guy. He lived in the wild, ate locusts and grasshoppers, and his pulpit was that of a muddy riverbank. I am, of course, speaking of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And if you were going to pick a man for the job of being the forerunner of the most important event utilizing the most perfect man to grace this creation, what kind of a man would you pick? Would it have the description of what I just said? To clarify, the event I'm talking about is kicking off the ministry of Jesus Christ and starting the process of the kingdom of God slingshotting us from all the buildup of the Hebrew scriptures to the Messiah they've all been praying and crying and begging for. This was the guy that did this. And as I said before, he is the linchpin between the Old Testament and the New. He's the hinge point. He pushes the rock, pun intended, over the hill and begins the process of the upside-down kingdom coming to earth. His prep work for this job was about, I don't know, 30 years in the making and lasts just a couple once he actually gets started his ministry and gets a following of his own. So if you have Jesus in your life in any capacity, you can thank this guy for starting that. And that's not just me speaking. You can check the last line of Malachi the prophet. He'll confirm exactly what I'm saying. Now, I don't have as many bizarre takes on this, guys. My previous episodes are sorry to disappoint those looking for the weird. I do have a couple up my sleeve, obviously, so don't fret. But in my deep dive on this man has been nothing but just getting me on fire for the guy and, and what he foretold. He is a beast, an absolute unit of a soldier for the kingdom. And I've been absorbing more and more about him like a sponge in the past few months. You can't have Jesus without John. And what do I mean by that? So without any further delay, let's get into it. John was born to an elderly couple, Jewish priest and his wife. Their names were Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was described, she was described as a daughter of Aaron. So, you know, this tells us both of them came from the tribe of Levi, which is, of course, the priestly line, a.k.a. Bible nerds. And I mean that with all due respect and in the best way. I hope someone says that about me at my funeral. 
as I said, they were advanced in years, well, well beyond childbearing years. And up until now, they had no children until they got a little visit from a messenger of the Most High. Zechariah was performing one of the most sacred rituals at the time of the Jewish people. He was heading into the Holy of Holies in the temple. At this point in history, the priestly duties were on rotation. They would draw lots, draw straws, certain tasks, like lighting the incense, getting the showbread ready, taking care of the water basins, etc., etc. These tasks would culminate when a priest was chosen, and this time the spinning wheel landed on Zechariah, and he was to gather some fiery embers from the altar on a bronze shovel, of course, and a mix of specially prepared spices and take them up the steps to the Holy of Holies. The hot spot inside the temple, I've covered that in many podcasts about this motif, so I won't elaborate here. But as we know, this is God's space and human space at one point and touching. This is very serious work. Zechariah does his thing, and as he completes the task, the archangel Gabriel appears and delivers a stunning message. As with every time an angel appears to someone, Zechariah is beyond terrified. So get the image of a halo and wings, get, get that right out of your head. This is not what angels look like. Sidebar, my favorite part of any angel encounter is when the angel appears and it's the scariest thing on earth. And what does the angel always say first? That's right. Do not be afraid. (laughs) It always tickles me. Okay, glowing spiritual being. I'll, I'll be fine. Don't kill me, please. Thanks. Gabriel says, quote, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness. And you will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great beyond the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. End quote. Zechariah steadies his nerve and replies to this amazing news and says back, quote, How will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. End quote. Dude, this answer is such a perfect example of the human condition that I will keep exploring in this series. Guys, old Zeke's a Levite. His job is to work and keep the temple, right? Just like Adam was to work and keep the garden. He knows everything. He knows all of the prophets and talking to God. He knows of the 400 years of silence from Yahweh. He's also a very old man with a barren wife. How long has he prayed this prayer to God? How many years? How many quiet times alone just begging for an heir? And he finally gets the news. And it wasn't just a quiet moment with God alone whispering in his ear. This is Gabriel, bro. He knows who Gabriel is, the archangel who fought the rebellious spirits with Michael and Raphael and Uriel and others. This angelic being comes and says, pretty matter-of-factly, that that God heard his prayer. Like he just prayed it that day for the first time. And what is Zechariah's reply? He says, Gabriel, are you sure? I mean, mean, I'm pretty old. You sure this prayer is legit? (laughs) I mean... Even with all the biblical knowledge and years of wisdom, he questions it as soon as he gets it. What a wonderful example of yet again how humans cannot handle knowing good and bad. Our equilibrium has been off since we ate of the tree over and over again. Nothing new under the sun, as King Solomon says. Speaking of sons, pun intended, Zechariah was a Jewish man, obviously. So 
Remember Deuteronomy and Leviticus books where, where the concept of divorce was granted to Jewish people for their hard hearts. Zechariah had every right, every right to offer Elizabeth a respectful divorce because she could not produce an offspring. So if you happen to watch the, the new film that came out on Napoleon, which in my opinion was about 45 minutes too long and, and missed on some key data, but nevertheless, he does the same thing with Josephine. Napoleon loves Josephine, which sounds obvious to love your wife, but not necessarily in these days. It was a kingdom built. Alliances are built on marriages between kingdoms. She could not conceive. It was shown to be her fault and not his. So he divorces her because he's the emperor of France and he has got to have an heir to the throne. Same concept here with Zechariah. He easily could have offered her a respectful certificate of divorce to be able to further the tribe of Levi. He did not. He stayed with her. He did the noble thing. And then he is blessed with this decision and God tells Gabriel to go down and tell him that his long, long prayers have been answered. And he flakes. <laughs> the Bible's amazing, man. You should read the Bible. Now, Gabriel doesn't like this answer. And he has a bit of a pivot now that, you know, based on the answer, as, as he retorts to old Zeke, quote, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be made silent and unable, unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why, Gabriel? Because you didn't believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They're, they're wondering what the heck is going on. He's delayed in the temple. Obviously, it's taking a little bit longer of time. So when he came out, he can't talk. And they realize he had seen a vision in the temple. End quote. That's from Luke 1, if you want to read it. So Zechariah and Elizabeth get amazing, wonderful news. First, their prayers have been answered. A barren woman at this time in history was a huge blemish on the family very gossipy and hurtful to these poor women throughout this narrative. Elizabeth shines like a star to me. She is so quiet. She doesn't speak very much, but like most that don't when she does, it is perfect for Zechariah. He gets a little more heavenly discipline for his doubt. He is a mute and unable to speak during the whole pregnancy until the birth. So not, not devastating, but definitely a very annoying little correction from the father there. This should be a, Good callback to the reminder of Abraham and Sarah as they're told a very similar tale from the angel and Sarah laughs it off. She didn't get struck with a silent tongue, but she had some uh, hardships of her own, but uh, I'm not going to get into that. Moving on. All right, let's loop in Mary here. After speaking with her cousin or her second cousin, it doesn't matter, Elizabeth. Next, Gabriel goes and pays a virgin teenager named Mary a visit. We all know this beautiful story. She also is going to have a child, even though she is still a virgin, and her son will also be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. That's also Luke 1. Looks like Yahweh took it up a notch here, huh? Two miraculous birth announcements within a few months of each other. Last note on Luke, it tells us, also that Gabriel tells Mary that her relative Elizabeth is also pregnant, which states, quote, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren for nothing is impossible with God, end quote. So it appears that Elizabeth, she kept the news of the pregnancy to herself for a while. She, like I said, she's the quiet one. And it seems that God honored her wishes to stay quiet. But here's another thought on that that was, that was brought up to me in my Bible study a few months ago. 
another very real human response. I mean, maybe Elizabeth has been close in the past. We don't know. Maybe, maybe she lost a pregnancy, which if any of you have been through that horribly sad, tragic moment, it, it can be crippling. Maybe she kept it to herself to not have to go through that with every person in town asking how the baby's doing. She possibly waited those months to really be sure this time that it's happening. I, I don't know, but I like that thought. It just puts a human out. It makes sense. But he told Mary, and she was elated, so excited, so much so that she wants to go see her. She wants to go see her cousin. Poor Joseph, man. I'm sorry. This, this guy gets no credit. He just found out that his fiance is pregnant, and it's not by him. And she told him she didn't cheat on him, but that she, she is carrying the son of God. The Jewish Messiah is in her belly. Now, a little bit later, he gets confirmation from an angel that this is true. But man, oh man, what are those first five minutes like? This guy has the patience of a Zen master monk that's been sitting in a tree for 30 years. Way to hold the line, Joseph. Oh yeah, and and what does she tell her soon-to-be husband next? She wants to go see her cousin, Elizabeth, because she's also pregnant. Oh, okay, Mary. And where are they again? I'm just... just just spitballing here. Oh, they're 100 kilometers away as the crow flies. Come on, let's get packing. So now, when Mary arrives to her relative, she's obviously been through the ringer emotionally, spiritually, physically. She's got to be exhausted. All while in the early stages of pregnancy, which can be the toughest sometimes to a new mommy out there. This meeting with Mary and Elizabeth is called the visitation in, in some denominations. And Luke records this event like this, quote, In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greetings of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, leaped for joy and blessing and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, end quote. Can you just see Zechariah here waving his arms, trying to talk, signaling to them like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to her. That's true. This is huge. Guy still can't talk. Has to be frustrating with all the amazing things happening. So let's, let, let's focus on John the Baptist here. We see that he leaps when he gets near little baby Jesus. It's in his DNA. These two are connected. He recognizes the Christ. The Spirit of God is all over this event, and it's dripping with holiness. So Mary stays with Elizabeth for a long time of the pregnancy, and I believe they got very close at this time. Old Zechariah is still mute at this time. Remember, he can't talk. Cluing back, recall that Gabriel said, to make sure you name this kid John, okay? Or Yohanan in Hebrew, which means Yahweh or Yehovah brings grace. That's very important. The problem with this time period and naming of children was very traditional. There's no John in this family. You can't just pull a cool name out of the baby book. That's a non-starter. Elizabeth is ever obedient to the angel and keeps saying this child will be named John. Eight days after the birth and during the circumcision ceremony, they need to name this child. So in the confusion, some of the family's like, guys, we got to get word from Zechariah if this name's okay. All right. Old Zeke asks for a writing tablet to support Elizabeth, and suddenly his tongue is loosened, and he is able to say, name him John, which I think is kind of funny. I, mean, I wonder if he was coughing or squeaky voice, whiskey gravel. He hasn't been talking for a long time. 
All right, so let's fast forward a little bit, or this is going to take forever. The next stage of John's life is very, very vague. We get very little detail on his day-to-day when he went to the temple, who he studied under, and when he went to the wilderness, and what wilderness. Many, many theories. I mean, his parents are from the priestly line of the Jewish family. He had to get amazing biblical knowledge from them, no doubt. And I don't see them taking this miracle baby as he grows and just send him out in the wild. What wild? Where? I mean, are you thinking like Mowgli and Jungle Book vibe raised by wolves? Me either. From infancy to the start of his ministry, which is about 30 years, there's very, very little discussed in this time period. Luke 1 tells us, quote, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel, end quote. All right, so we got that. That's something. That's a clue. Here are some theories. One, this is from the second temple period called the writings. This is called the gospel of James. It stated that Herod, we'll get to him later, and his troops were looking to kill John as they were also looking for baby Jesus. But Elizabeth took him and hid him in a cave about three miles away. They come and ask Zechariah about where his son is. He denies knowing him and they kill him. So John lived in this cave in the wilderness, learning from her until it was time for him to come out. There are many caves that are thought to be the location of this. One was picked up and has a crusader building above it now and claims to be where Elizabeth is buried. An order of nuns lives there now, if you want to research that, but I doubt you will. Another thought is that with having such elder parents, they both die of old age quickly, and John is cast out into the wild alone and in solitude. I just don't see this with his calling and the communities all around him. Even in the desert, there's clans of people everywhere. No child can just wing it in this desert bear girl style. I'm sorry. That one's even a stretch for me, and you guys know I like to stretch it. Maybe both parents did die, and he was taken up as an orphan, but with Mary and Joseph that close by, not to mention all the extended family around and the traditions of the Jewish faith and taking care of family, I don't see this special boy getting kicked out alone. Not with the people buzzing about this in his future in the calling, you know? More recently, the Dead Sea Scrolls, being discovered in the wilderness community of the Essenes being found, there's a major theory, sidebar, that's, that's lots of strict denominations do not like for some reason. They don't like this one. And he spent some time with the community in Qumran and their caves. You know, the ones who were so devoted to God and his writings that they pulled away from the large corrupt cities around. They decided to devote themselves to God and his teachings in the hope that if they did so, that God would show up begging for the Messiah to come and preparing themselves and the way of that day. And guess what their community guideline verse was that they held to? That's right. It's Isaiah 43 through five. And a friendly reminder of what that states, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. End quote. Any alarm bells going off there related to John? Uh, yeah. As you can imagine, I like this take. Maybe just because I love the Essene so much. So Tyler, what the heck is an Essene and why is this weirdo cult of Judaism important to this story? Well, as Ace Ventura says, I thought you'd never ask. Guys, you want to understand the gospel in an amazing new way? If you want the characters to leap off the page to you, wait till I explain this. This will help you so much with understanding Jesus and his audience, who he was talking to, what their hangups were. This will change the way you read about Jesus forever. 
This might be the most important setting of the table you will learn in a long time, and it sure as hell was for me in my Bible study group. This makes the setting and introduction to Jesus on the scene so much more clear. You ever hear the groups of the people named the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, maybe Herodians, when you read through the four Gospels? You ever just lump them all together as the same thing because you have no frame of reference for any of the difference? Yeah, me too. For the longest time, I thought the Sadducees and the Pharisees are, I don't know, basically the same thing. Maybe one believed in the afterlife and chance of resurrection and the other didn't. Only thing I ever learned in a church building was this joke about them. The Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife, and that is why they were so sad, you see. Maybe it was reincarnation. Either way, you know, it's equally stupid when you find out what was really going on. And I'm about to elaborate on this, and I promise you, you will love this. Here we go. I got to Dan Carlin this a little bit and go back. Not long, I promise. But a little bit of history that makes this crystal clear. Spoiler alert. You can seem super smart to your Jewish friends of the holiday season that just passed with this little nugget I'm about to give you. So look forward to that. First, I start with Alexander the Great. He's conquering the world. Macedonian Empire, Macedonian Empire, however you want to say it. They defeat the Persians. Alexander knew what all great men learn that have gotten to this level of world domination. You can't use an army once the scale amplifies this much. It covers too much of an area. So Alexander said, I need just four things to control. I control your education, the healthcare, the entertainment, you know, your news and theater, and athletics, competition, tribal identity, politics, those four pillars, and I will change the world. All of those tug at selfish ambition, comfort, leisure. Sound familiar? Just wait for this next election cycle to start again. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's the tale as old as time. This is the worldview, and it's called Hellenism. By the way, before I go any further, this is explained in much better detail in a Bayma early podcast by Marty. If you want to go deeper than what I'm about to summarize, please listen to that series. Maybe I'll link it in the show notes. I got to give him credit on this one. All right, back on track. Everywhere you go in Greco-Roman world that Jesus came into had this state of mind flowing through it, and Jesus makes this a beautiful disaster for them. In the desert, you know you need God. When you get into a beautiful resort with running water, food, wine, music's going, a lot going on, gorgeous women, eh, it's a little tougher, right? You basically think you made it. You made it to Tarshish like Jonah did. So to give a call back, next, Alexander the Great dies. He was potentially gay. He had no children for sure, but this is wildly known. You can ask any history teacher that cares about this great man. They'll probably agree. He sure as hell drank too much. That's for sure. He didn't have anxiety pills. So after seeing so much battle on the front lines, you kind of can't blame the guy. Anyways. All right. So, so they're begging him for an heir. He wouldn't sleep with any women. It was bizarre. So his empire gets divided, which is never a good thing. You got to have a will in place, people. The empire goes to at least four rulers. Two of them were Seleucus in the east. And in the south, which was Egypt, we have Ptolemy. Okay, so the region where the Jews have settled in Jerusalem is Ptolemy. Their approach to Hellenism was to preset it and make sure all conquered people, including the Jews, could lap up these fruits. It's everywhere. It's so enticing. But eventually, the Seleucids go to war with their neighbor for power. This is about... 198, 167 BC, they win. They rule and come into Jerusalem. And in an unbelievable show of force, they take over the temple there and they sacrifice a pig on the altar of Yahweh. 
there's a sect of Jews that is pretty aggressive and they're, they're none too pleased. They will be later be known as the zealots. They revolt. This is called the Maccabean revolt. And it led, it's led by Judah Maccabee, which means Judah, the hammer. This guy is awesome. Reminds me of Joseph, Joseph Trumpledorf, a Jewish, a Russian Jew that fought in world war one. Go look that up guys. Anyway, this famous result of the revolt is the story of Hanukkah, an eight day revolt where they go up against the strongest army of the day and they win somehow miraculously. They get the temple back up, kick out the Seleucids. And as legend has it, they go back into the temple after eight days of fighting and the priests not administering and attending to the lampstands and the lampstand is still burning there. That's Hanukkah. Eight crazy nights without oil as Adam Sandler famously sang about. So this leads to a century of Jewish rule called the Hasmonean dynasty. Here's the rub. When they won the war, they decided who's going to rule us. So they go back to the text, the Hebrew Bible, because they had become the people of the text, which is wonderful. They go back to the laws established by Moses from Sinai and Yahweh's instruction. They see that God really wanted humans to rule as what? As priests. So they handed the kingdom over to their current priests. Guess what happens in a short period of time? Corrupt, completely corrupt, totally Hellenistic. They love the culture and who can blame them? They have the temple, but they also have the arena, the Roman. They love the theater. This priestly class that became corrupt will turn into what we know as the Sadducees. So the Maccabean rebels that, that did all the heavy lifting of the revolt. How do you think they felt about this group of corrupt priests? loving this Greek lifestyle after all the work they did. Here's a thought. Josephus, a Jewish historian, he writes that they, there weren't enough priests to run Shabbat, to run the Sabbath services at the temple because they were all at a mud wrestling tournament. That's a lot of priests guys. That, that, that's, that's not enough. That's like canceling church to go to the club. You show up to church on Sunday and the whole staff is out partying. That's literally how corrupt it was. So if you weren't a priest, but you agreed with the worldview that liked this beautiful, awesome culture and all that came with it, that's called a Herodian. That is us. That's us mostly in America. You can have the study of the text and love God, but you also enjoy security, leisure, luxury, air conditioning, entertainment. That's us. That's me. We love college football and tailgating all Saturday morning, going to the game screaming at these poor teenagers on a field for not being as athletic as you were back in the day. You pass out from overeating and overdrinking. Then you wake up on Sunday, hungover, and you head to mass. Ring a bell, anybody? Yes, me too. We are such hypocrites. Praise God for his patience with me, for his amazing grace and saving a wretch like me, because I am one. There were two other groups that also hated this. They can't believe we are doing this. They both rejected the compromise and they headed north to build a different fundamentalist group that was totally devoted. One town was Galilee and these are the zealots and the Pharisees. Very similar. Total devotion. One is devoted with the sword and that's the zealots. They're the fighters, warriors for God. The others, complete obedience. That's the Pharisees. They think we just aren't doing the rules hard enough in this culture. God has been silent, but that's our fault for not implementing his laws enough. So they are ever tweaking them, trying to get back on track. For example, like I said, the thought on the Sabbath, resting with God, knowing that he will provide even if we take a day off and relax with him in his creation. That was the intent of that setup. We ruin it, of course. 
And the Pharisees instituted that you couldn't walk a certain number of steps on Sabbath or it was punishable. So, so things like that. Now to give them grace, just remember that Jesus spends by far his most time with the Pharisees as opposed to the other groups. They were close, man. They had the right idea. They were just off on their hearts in the original meaning of God's laws. So Rome eventually comes in, conquers Judah. When the Sadducees, the corrupt priests, think like a a mafia, mob boss running the town. They see the Romans on the horizon coming and they they start plotting and planning. They know Rome is coming and they are going to lose all this privilege and comfort. So they go to Herod the Great. He was the son of an Ijumean king. They own the spice trade. Totally. That's like the movie Dune. This is like owning all of the oil in the world. Not Saudi Arabia. Owning all of the oil in the world. This is the wealthiest man to ever live. Beyond what you can imagine. So so the Sadducees go to him. They go to Herod. They know that Rome is incredibly powerful, but they lacked total wealth. So they partner with Herod and say, we will make you king over us. And you partner with Rome. Even even Julius Caesar is a part of this discussion as a partnership. Herod dies in about 4 BC. Jesus is maybe born in, I don't know, 6 BC. Herod's sons are garbage, obviously. One is Archelaus. He's barely a blip in history. He's terrible. He is replaced by a Roman ruler to come right the ship. They send in a governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. Boom. And here we are. Jesus' ministry starts in about... AD 27 to 30, Jesus dies in maybe AD 30. That's debated. I'm not getting into that. Misses the whole point. Lastly, the group we missed, they are the Essenes. They come from that priesthood that was originally supposed to be good that became corrupt. They couldn't stand these guys. They hated it. They didn't go north with the zealots and the Pharisees. Instead, they ran out into the desert like David Koresh in Waco, started a compound, called it Qumran, behind the work of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These guys are crazy devoted to knowing the path and walking the path. Like I said, what made them great was their devotion to the text, their obsession with Hebrew scripture. And they thought if we can just pray and do these rituals and study the text and meditate on it day and night, then God will show up. And to their credit, in my opinion, God did just that, starting with John the Baptist and leading to the Christ. Now, what did they do wrong, you ask? Well, they kind of took their ball and went home, you know, which is not what we're called to do. Have you met the Christian today that never speaks about it, keeps their faith to themselves? They pray and read. If it's ever brought up in a social setting, they become a wallflower. They don't ruffle too many feathers at the party kind of a thing. It's like when someone finds out about Jesus and stays private, sits in their rocking chair and waits for the rapture. That's the isolated stance of the Essenes. So again, all these groups have their flaws. And thus the reason God at that exact perfect time came down to get involved. I told you, man, it's fascinating stuff. Well, it is to me at least. So to summarize, we have the two said they would embrace Hellenism and work with it. They live in it. That's the Sadducees, the corrupt priesthood that became the mob boss, like in the film Godfather. Remember the baptism scene in Godfather? This is a perfect image for this. Michael Corleone is getting his son baptized. And the priest is asking him if he renounces Satan. And all the rituals are beautiful. And the building is beautiful. And they have on their $1,000 suits. All the while, Michael has his goons out in the town murdering his enemies. That's the Sadducees. Then the Herodians thought we can live and work in this awesome new world, but we still love God. We got Yahweh in our hearts and soul and mind. We still enjoy Instagram and Game of Thrones. 
but kind of stops there. One group abandoned all worldview, the Essenes. They headed to the desert to wait for judgment. Two groups stayed devoted in different ways. The zealots, who are the warriors that are needed. Remember, Jesus picks a couple of these guys as his disciples. How about that? And the Pharisees, devoted to the text and the rules, but they don't want to murder anybody. They're just missing that one thing. Jesus spends a lot of time with them. They get a bad rap. So, with all that info, I might need to wrap up here in this initial episode. That was a lot, but... I'm telling you, when you read the four Gospels now, these guys will jump off the page to you. It gives you so much more context with Jesus' trial and execution. You can see the players so quickly in the inner circle meetings. Completely fraudulent charges on Jesus that were decided in the middle of the night by these guys. This makes me furious. And yet, all part of the plan. How do you defeat the dragon, Jesus? By letting the dragon kill you. No one saw that coming. Not even the rebellious spirits in Sheol that thought they finally got one over on the Creator. Nope. Sorry, guys. I don't know to what extent, but I have to imagine that John the Baptist spent some time at this camp with the Essenes. I don't know how long. But like I said, the wilderness years are almost blank. We don't get much info. But John was preparing for 30 years for his short ministry. And I think his teachings from devout parents, along with the knowledge of the corrupt citizens of the time, And with how close this camp of the Essenes were to the banks of the Jordan River, where he did his thing, another piece of the puzzle falls into place for me with this tale. It's almost too much for me to handle how perfect this is sometimes. Just a bunch of human beings doing and reacting and questioning everything in real time. What an amazing story. And I am just getting started. Love us or hate us, we humans can really muck things up, can't we? And God is never phased. He just lovingly adjusts to our missteps, keeps the ball in the air, keeps the plan moving. We never see it in its full capacity, and that is okay. I doubt we could handle the ups and downs that he handles with 100% grace and 100% truth. Praise God for his patience and his love. Stay tuned as I continue the crux of the most amazing story that has ever been told. I am Tyler Parker, and Sunday School is out. Sunday School is out.